Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Before we get into this awesome, epic interview with Marcus Young, I just want to tell you two things. Number one, as always, stick around to the end of the episode so you can hear the secret message from our mastering engineer, Brandon Yoakum. And I would like to also thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest levels of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. As musicians, it's simply a fact that we will be spending a significant portion of our lives with our instruments. Unfortunately, many of us can feel stuck with a bad fit, fighting to get the sound we want. If you and your instrument aren't getting along right now, Houghton Horns can help. They have an incredible selection of brass instrument makers in stock, including Adams, Bach & Conselmer, Eastman & Shires, Engelbert Schmidt, Paxman, Tyne, Yamaha, and more. They even have vintage and consignment instruments available as well. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. Whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and today I'm really excited to be speaking with Marcus Young, who uh, it's hard to pinpoint just one facet of what Marcus does in his career, which is one reason I'm really excited to dig in. Uh, he is the principal trombonist with the Malaysian Philharmonic. Uh, you teach at, there's a school you teach at, I saw in your bio. Uh, can you remind me what that is? Yang Sito Music Conservatory. Yeah, I'm glad you said it because I probably would have <laughs> butchered that. Uh, yeah. And then he's got this whole other sort of, uh, It's hard, like a, for me, it's hard, again, hard to sort of pinpoint exactly what genre it fits in, but uh, he goes by Q Sound, and it's just so cool that you're just, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it. I'm just digging that you're like, I'm just going to do it all, and I'm going to do it really well, and no one's going to tell me not to, you know, because I think sometimes, at least for myself, it can get really easy to get sort of singular-minded about, I'm an orchestral player, and that's what I do, and I'm starting to branch out a little bit and think of myself in other ways, so I'm really curious to get your perspective on what that looks like and how you just sort of embrace just going for something else. Um, before we get started, to, well, before we get started, thank you so much for giving me some of your time, man. I really appreciate no it. No problem, bro. Pleasure. Um, I don't know if you know this. I, I played the Brandenburg with Malaysia in like 2017. So I was there for like a week or something like that. Uh, um, right, 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 I, yeah, right. Okay, okay. I forget the... There, I forget the conductor's name. It was like an all broke thing, so there was no brass, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, but I was there for like a week. I did the Brandenburg. It was crazy. It was it was a whirlwind. I found out about three weeks earlier because uh, somebody had dropped out. You're doing principal trumpet <laughs> candidates. Somebody dropped out, and yeah. they were like, "Do you want to come to Malaysia?" And so I had to get a passport real fast. It it basically felt like the trip didn't happen, but it was a pretty. It was cool, man. I, I the, obviously a beautiful hall. So I'm sorry I missed you at that time. I'm glad we can connect now. Yeah, no doubt, man. I remember being off that week. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, 
Anyway, well, we can talk about more of that later if we get to it. But I want to start with just your backstory. Just take us kind of where you got started with music and then to to the best of your ability and whatever's relevant, just kind of take us to how you got where you are now. Man, uh, well, first off, thank you again for inviting me to be a part of your podcast. Uh, you know, it's always a pleasure to be able to talk with other brass players. And, uh, I, you know, I've checked out some of your playing. Man, you sound great, bro. Like, oh, I appreciate it. Yeah. Especially I just started to... Um, really really dig into the trumpet the last i'd say like the last year and a half and uh you know i definitely can appreciate those uh <laughs> <laughs> i can appreciate the stuff you do man that's crazy no, um, i appreciate that <laughs> um backstory for me um geez i don't know where to start like um well, where are you from well i was born in wichita falls texas and I moved to Fort Smith, Arkansas when I was about two years old with my mom and my grandfather and my sister. Um, they were, my grandfather's a preacher, so he had churches that he was going to. And so my mom uh, was a musician, uh, pianist, church pianist, so she did that. Uh, she actually studied a little bit of classical piano too, but she's always shy to talk about that. Um, so it was me, my mom, my sister, and my grandfather, and then my stepdad would come in later. Uh, and we used to, you know, travel around doing this thing called vacation Bible school. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and you know how it is in the South. You live in Alabama, right? I do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So it was like doing a lot of church. And then eventually my mom started teaching in the public school system. And so that's, uh, where we kind of stabilized in Fort Smith. And uh, from there, uh, you know, music was always a part of our lives, but I never really like thought about it because it was just kind of like, yeah, mom always singing in the choir. She always playing the piano, you know, every time we got it, there's always a Christmas thing we have to do. And I really took it for granted, to be honest. Um, mm. I knew she was great because like every time uh, she would sing. There's always a couple of songs that she would do where people would start crying. And as a as a kid, I'd be like, "Man, what's wrong with them?" Like, you know, they. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But as a as I've gotten older, I realize I'm like, man, if I can have that effect on people when I play, that's a that I've done some serious work in my artistry. Um. So, but that's that's like later. Uh, so she she was a huge impact on me. Um. Growing up, and I, I also remember uh, me and my sister, when we would be waiting for mom to get finished with work, because she was a teacher, so she'd have to like stay after and grade papers and whatever. So me and my sister would be waiting. Uh, my sister's seven, old, seven years older than me. And uh, we would always play like uh, these hum, these, what called like a, a hum competition, where we'd have to like, we'd hum like, do, 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 do. <laughs> and somebody, and, and I'd have to guess the song that she hummed or she had to guess the song yeah. that I hummed. Um, and we would be doing that for hours. Uh, we always used to sleep with the, uh, the music on. We shared a room. So there was, the stereo was always on when we were, when we were kids um, sleeping. Then my sister got into junior high school and started listening to, uh, uh, I can't remember when she started listening to Bobby Brown. And uh, new edition and all, all that music. And so, growing up as a kid, I was like, "Oh, okay, you know, that's that's just what was on all the time." Plus, my mom was listening to a lot of Whitney Houston, 
Anita Baker, uh, <clears throat> the Clark sisters, plus all the gospel stuff she was listening to. So music was pretty much always around, you know, and I just, like I said, I took it for granted. I, I didn't really realize how much of an impact that made until later on in life. So did you have much, sorry to interrupt, did you have much classical music involved in that? Or was it mostly what you were, so, so far you've described things that are not classical music. (laughs) I'm curious if that was in there too. No, there was no classical music. Um, the, the first classical music I remember getting introduced to was when I was in, I was also in elementary school and, uh, we always there, you know, when you're in elementary school, I don't know how it was for you, but we had one class, a music class. And that was a class where we would, you know, get some, uh, I remember some memorable moments like uh, watching the West Side Story, uh, the Bernstein uh, version. Or that, that's only one version, but sorry. The um, the black and white version. I can't remember which one it was. It was so long ago since so I've seen it. Uh, but I remember watching that and thinking like, okay, that's kind of cool. But the first classical thing that I remember was uh, listening to uh, it was Peter and the Wolf. Um, mm. And the teacher told us that like, oh, this, this song is kind of depicting like a story. And so uh, she kind of made it sound like a scary story. And it kind of like, it had an impact. I was like, oh, I didn't, okay. That's the first time I felt like music um, could transcend just the sound, but it can like create a story within the actual sounds. Um, and so that was the first classical thing I heard. But otherwise, it was always like gospel R&B, uh, some hip-hop, but mainly gospel and R&B. I got you. Mm. So I didn't mean to stop here, sort of where you were headed with that trajectory. I, just, <laughs> I was curious because for me, I listened to a lot of sort of like big band era stuff mm. when I was a kid. So that's what I grew up on, you know, some, you know, Benny Goodman and Glenn Miller and Harry James, Rafael Mendez. It's about mm-hmm. as close as I got to uh, classical playing. And then when I was in high school, that's when I picked up like a Mahler 5 with Chicago or something. And was like, whoa, there's this whole, like you're t- it's this whole other world where you're just, you know, saying different stuff with the, it's interesting that you would draw that conclusion too, that that classical music would be the thing that would kind of show you that the sounds themselves could tell you a story, not just the that's interesting. I think that you took that away from that. So, like I said, I didn't mean to take you away from the story you were no. telling, but I just was curious about that. Well, actually, the so the first um, the first time I really got deep into classical music was probably when I joined the band program, and I, I wouldn't even say it was classical. It was it was you know band music, but um, I remember very vividly. Hearing uh, Robert W. Smith's uh, what is this song called Incantations? You know, we have the all state, so. <laughs> all state, all region trials, right? And um, my first year, uh, I think I was in eighth grade, right? So I started playing euphonium, and uh, my first year trying out, I got beat <laughs> real bad. Like I, I made like second chair, second band, and I was I was upset. And we were playing, you know, music was all right in the second band, but then the first band played. And they played uh, Robert W. Smith's Incantations. And that was the first time I heard something like that. And man, when they, when they, they used to send us the recordings uh, of the concerts um, after we do them. And I remember getting that recording and I actually, <laughs> I played that recording to death. I was like, yeah. I just, I just couldn't, I, even now today, like it still influences me uh, just 
some of the ways that he 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 chose his harmonies and stuff like that uh it really it made an impact on me and i think that's what really got me into like oh okay this this uh this this is a gateway into some heavier stuff music side yeah that's cool so how did that how did that uh take you sort of through high school and and into college and stuff like that that you sort of had such a diverse background in what music has meant for you and and how you have a relationship with that how did that manifest as you kind of went through a school well i guess when i was like 12 um moving going backwards a little bit uh you know my involvement with church was always big you know uh my my grandfather's a preacher my dad's a preacher my mom was doing so like i was always involved in church and i think seeing the impact of music uh, in church and also being a part of it because uh, eventually I would join the choir and start singing and you know that the music is like one of the the highlights of going to church especially down uh, where I went to St. James Baptist we had a great uh, choir great uh, music director a really great drummer that was the first time I heard of uh, I've seen a drummer like do the gospel gospel chops thing you know, he would take these crazy solos and I'd just be like, I'm unbelievable. Um, and so that experience kind of like showed me the power of music. Uh, going through the band program showed me how to, uh, how to do, how to play music. Um, cause I, I mean, in church, like it's a great thing that like, uh, I think I was talking to uh, um, Dion Tucker on his his podcast. Shout out to Dion. Um, <clears throat> um, we used to learn songs in the choir, and they would they would uh, have a rehearsal, and the music director would just be like, "Okay, sopranos is your part, altos is your part, tenors is your part." By the end of three hours, we learned like three songs with all this counterpoint and all this stuff with it. And then we just do it the next day. And it was like, you know, that's what it was. And like now, mm. um, thinking about like, okay, I have a band. If I try to do that right now, it'd be a lot more difficult, uh, <laughs> yeah. especially without charts. Um, so the, the intuitive side was being built through church. And that's kind of where, eventually where my jazz thing would kind of come into play because jazz would kind of guide me through understanding how to improvise, uh, what to do, when to do it. Um, it kind of like curated my taste a little bit, but um, the intuitive side of the music definitely came from church. And so going through the band program, uh, and like I said, playing <laughs> Robert W. Smith and then <laughs> the, the the marching band stuff and also seeing how people were influenced by uh, what we did, you know, in pep rallies and concerts and stuff like that. It was like, oh, okay. So slowly like gathering all this information, we're like, man, music is crazy. Like you can do all this stuff with music. I still want to play basketball though. So I'm going to try to play basketball. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I didn't figure out what I, that I wanted to be a musician until, uh, I was probably like 16, 17, I think. But. Are you glad that it took you a little while? I mean, I'm pretty similar. I, I enjoyed playing. Uh, and then I think it was between my junior and senior year of high school. I, I think that's when I was like, all right, I think this is the thing I want to try to do. But I was a, 
sort of allowed to be a, a kid, you know what I mean? Because I wasn't so focused on music. Are you glad it, you came to it a little bit later like that? Or I, I, It's funny because like the now a lot of people tell me it wasn't so late, but uh, I think it's they're, they're in different fields like business and stuff. But um, yeah, I am in a way. I mean, but I, you know, the way the band programs work, it kind of like breeds this kind of competition in a way, which is, is good. You know, I think it really helped me along the way to, you know, sharpen my, my sword a little bit. So with the All-State, All-Region tryouts that would happen every year and, you know, you'd see the players and be like, okay, I got to learn this repertoire. I got to, got to sound good so I can get a good, good spot and whatever. And, um, I remember one year, uh, uh, I auditioned thinking All-State. And I got a really low chair again, <laughs> you know, and I was like, second band, second chair again, man, bump this. Like, and I think that was when I decided like at that moment or no, no, it, it was a combination of that. And also I was watching this PBS special and they were doing this, uh, this uh, documentary on this uh, Chinese girl and she, she lived in China and they were talking about uh, how she used to practice like eight hours a day. And I saw that and I was like, I looked at myself and I'm like, well, I just, you know, didn't do well in this audition. Uh, I only practice like two hours a day. So if practicing eight hours a day, if she's doing that at eight years old, man, <laughs> I gotta, yeah, I gotta, yeah. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta like figure it out. So I started practicing eight hours a day. I thought that was the thing. And, uh, I literally did that. How long did that last? Uh, couple years maybe maybe like wow. maybe a year it was a year for eight hours and then like i, I would drop it to like four so Gosh, i try to practice crazy. four hours a day every day i mean obviously i'm sure you improved significantly but that's such a commitment <laughs> you know what i mean man i, I no nah, it, it was kind of stupid <laughs> practice <laughs> <laughs> but but the good thing about it you know i don't i don't think that it was useless because i think i got a lot out of it like i was going up and down the arvin's book like you wouldn't believe uh i was you know grabbing as many etude books as i can and just just excited to be like to go on the woodwind brass when or hickeys and be like what new book can i buy and just grab all the books and try to learn or at least read as much of the material as i could and though it it created other bad habits that i'd have to fix later um, it was good because I just constantly got in, in, introduction to new material. Uh, I was really excited to play. And so it kind of fostered a, uh, a work ethic that would kind of guide me through my career later. So, That's, yeah. Did you, you talked about this band program with a competition being really good for you. Did you have a teacher at the same time as well? Or are you kind of doing just working in the band and kind of working through it yourself? Yes, I had uh, two great, a uh, lot of great teachers. Um, uh, my first uh, teacher, official teacher, was Gordon Manley, who's still in uh, teaching at my high school. He, he was a trombone player, and uh, he's fr he got me started with euphonium. Then I started studying with this trumpet player named Bill Ratcliffe, who was uh, also really good, um, and uh, Mr. Kroom was a, one of the, was a high school band director, so between them three, and then I would take like some lessons uh, with some players along the way. Uh, there was a high school legend named Matt Murchison, who was a euphonium god back at the time. Uh, 
uh, who had studied with Brian Bowman and he'd gotten first chair of first band like for like 20 years in a row, whatever. Um, <laughs> so, you know, like I, I was, I was really into the, just who, who was great and just trying to learn. I was kind of a sponge. So whoever had something to say that was good, I was, I was ready to listen. Yeah, that's cool. Um, how did then, so we're sort of in that late high school, you're talking about 16, 17, mm. you want to kind of do it and take it seriously. And so, uh, where did you go from there? Um, well, after I, uh, had that rude awakening and it also kind of coincided with me, uh, cause I, I did have this idea of like, I want to play basketball. And once I stopped growing, <laughs> I stopped at like 5'11 and everybody else got to like 6'5 and stuff. I was like, oh. <laughs> and I was a post player. So it was like, <laughs> yeah. and I was a little too, too stocky to be a, a, a guard. So, you know, I had to quit basketball and, uh, music just kind of fell in. And, uh, then that's when I started playing trombone and, uh, high school is when I started to get in- introduced to jazz, uh, the first, I remember the first record I grabbed was, uh, first it was Winton's uh, Carnival album where he plays mm-hmm. Carnival Venice and all those Ar- Arbin solos, which was fitting because I was, like I said, I was up and down the Arbin's book all the time. So, uh, and I started checking him out and then I got introduced to some of his jazz stuff. And then I got into Maynard Ferguson's um, big band. So I started listening to that. And uh, the trombone side kind of came later. I heard, I started hearing about this guy, J.J. Johnson, and I was like, oh, he's probably all right, I guess. You know, he, he doesn't look, <laughs> he doesn't even play a, a, a trombone with a trigger. Like, what's, you know, you know, you think when you're like a silly high school sure, sure. kid. And then I, I heard a recording and I was like, okay, I had to sit down and shut up and like, just, you know, respect it. Like, this is greatness. And um, so that was kind of like my introduction to jazz and once I got into that field, then I knew for sure. I'm like, I love music. Uh, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. This is what I do. Yeah. Uh, I know I saw in your bio that you went to Juilliard, right? Yeah. Is that right? So then obviously you figured out, you know, I, I didn't catch if it was for undergrad or grad school. Um, I didn't, I don't remember. So I'm just kind of curious, like how you go from, this is what I want to do to one of the best schools that you can get to for, at least for orchestral playing. I'm sure there's, I mean, Wycliffe teaches there too, right? For Yeah, he, he taught he there te- for a little yeah. bit. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, basically it's going to be one of the best schools you can do for, for anything. And I mean, I'm just curious what that process was like for you to, because um, you're talking about coming to trombone, not late, right? Mm. I mean, you obviously have all this musical uh, background, but coming to actually playing the trombone, and then getting into a place like that, I'm just curious what that process was like for you. Um, you know, like I said, it all starts with the church. And I feel like because of that, like early on, I got I developed a really spiritual connection with music. Even now, the stuff that I write, uh, it tends to be more spiritually based in some way or another. I, I mean, I have my little moments where I step out of that, but usually it's 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 based in that and so uh i say that to say that uh, to say that um to say that to say that, to say that. <laughs> i say that to say <laughs> that um it was it was all by chance man like i feel like the 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 whole jewelry thing happened a friend of mine was uh auditioning and 
I, I was like, I wanted to go to Berkeley or UNT or University of Miami and do my euphonium and then double and do jazz. And uh, he was, his name was Adam Bean, trombone player. Shout out to Adam. And he was like, um, man, you should, you should, you should audition too. You know, like this guy, Joe Alessi is over there. He's principal trombone. I had a lesson with him. He's really good. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool, cool, cool. You know. And so <laughs> um, I, I studied at a, a, a tech school in Arkansas um, for two years. And my plan was once I graduated high school, I would go to this tech school for a couple years, double major on trombone and euphonium. And I studied with uh, Dr. Will Kimball, who's teaching at BYU. Great teacher. Um, amazing. And he introduced me to a lot of stuff. And so he mentored me and said, uh, you know, you should definitely consider auditioning at Juilliard. And so at the last minute, I sent my, my stuff in and I got there and, you know, scrambled up what little money I had to get there and um, auditioned. And I think even when I auditioned, I had no business, like I didn't know orchestral excerpts. I, I had, all I knew was like I could practice and I had a, because of like, you know, my experiences, I could play with a good sound. And uh, so when I had auditioned, I remember, uh, Dr. Kimball pulled me in his office like, listen, um, Joe, Joe Alessi just sent me an email and he's uh, asked about you. And he's like, uh, Marcus is really, really, you know, sounds really good. Um, but I've got questions about his his rhythm and da, 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 da. And so Dr. Kimball, you know, bigged me up for a little bit. And uh, I think Joe ended up saying, well, he's in, he's in, you know, he's, he's in my top couple of players. So wish him luck. And um, the day I went to my mailbox, and uh, it's funny because my friend got the rejection letter, <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> which is, <laughs> and he, it, it's like it's I, man, I feel so bad. And um, I get I get to my mailbox, and I'm like, okay, they're gonna send me the letter today, and uh, I see that it's a little bit thick, and I'm like, okay, that's a good sign. Um, so they, I got the acceptance letter and, you know, when they accept you in the school, they give you like all the booklets and stuff. And so I got all that and I was on my way. And even, even then, man, I was like, all right, I'm going to go to New York and I'm gonna, I'm just going to go try to play jazz. <laughs> so, so that was, that was also kind of a funny moment. Um, because I, at the time I didn't realize that the, the jazz department in Juilliard was a separate thing. I thought it was like at state school, you know, you just join the jazz program um, as a side thing. So when I got to Juilliard, uh, one of the first days I went to uh, Victor Goins' office and I was like, you know, I want to be in the jazz band. He was like, oh, <laughs> he kind of was like, well, all right, man, but you know, you, 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 you know, we got to audition and all this stuff. And like, it's a completely different program. But um, I tell you what, like, We'll, we'll keep in mind if we need some trombones or something like that. So I was really thankful for that. And on the flip side, I told Joe, I was like, man, I really want to play jazz. And Joe was like, now you work for me. You know, you need to just practice. You need to just focus on on learning how to play the trombone first. <laughs> both, yeah, wow. both were great experiences, you know, in the end. Uh, that's that's just cool that you would have... It's almost, I'm not going to try to put words in your mouth, so gotcha. forgive me if, I'm, if, I, if I say it wrong, but it's almost as if you just didn't know. You were just like, I just want to do this thing. And, and I feel like, I think that's such a cool 
you were just following what you wanted to do, I guess. Like you weren't necessarily sure this is the one thing, this is what it is, that's what I have to do with my life. But you're just, I dig jazz, I want to play the trombone. And you're just sort of like, I don't even know necessarily how it works, but I'm just going to go try to figure it out. And I think that kind of attitude or that perspective, uh, just being open to it all, but still having some idea, I think is, is awesome. You know what I mean? Like I, I decided relatively early on the one thing that I wanted to do. Mm. And I think I don't, I mean, yeah, I got there or, you know, whatever. And that's awesome. But in some ways, I think I was turned off to other opportunities that I think I even enjoyed. You know, I enjoyed playing lead in jazz band and stuff like that. I enjoyed doing that. But I was so turned off because I had decided that one thing that there's been a lot of deconstruction for me in terms of what it is that I want to do now. And like that I'm 32 years old. And mm. I wonder if some of that, if I just could have stayed a little bit more open to it. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Man, that makes perfect sense. Because for me, like that's been a gift and a curse. Like a lot of, <laughs> a lot of my career uh, thus far has been me understanding to get out of my own way. Uh, because I love every minute of being in New York City and studying at Juilliard and playing with Joe and all the great teachers that I work with, players, whatever. But one of the things that did happen to me is that I walked out with an agenda. And so moving to Malaysia, I mean, and, and with an agenda kind of similar to what you were describing, like I was like, okay, uh, I have to kind of do the classical thing or I have to do a jazz thing. Like I can't be both. I have to pick. And <clears throat> the truth of the matter is like when I moved out here, because of the way the setup is, um, the jazz scene is is still developing. So there's not this huge infrastructure, for better or for worse, uh, of, of stuff. And there's not a history, for better or for worse, of it to the degree of what it is in New York City. Same thing with the classical side. So when I moved here, it was kind of like a, a blank canvas. And I think because of mixing in with the, the players that I did, it kind of reminded me that, oh yeah, like I need to just like just do, just just do <laughs> what I like to do. Yeah, and you know if if people are cool with it, that's cool. If they're not, that's cool too. Because at the end of the day, like if I like it and I, it's something that I think would move me if I heard it, then I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And what I did, I mean, what I like. I checked out the track that was in your email, you know, check out my new track. And I, and what I like about it is there's no, there's, there wasn't a trombone to be found, you know, like, <laughs> I just think it's cool that it doesn't, it can be on the trombone. It doesn't have to be on the trombone. You know, there's just an element that I have hidden behind the trumpet for a lot of my life. You know, mm -hmm. I've hidden behind, this is the thing that like, I, this is what I do. This is how I provide value. And to sort of step out from around the trumpet and to try to provide, you know, provide value in air quotes. Separate from that is a weird experience, right? Because mm -hmm. I've so identified. And so the fact that, you know, that you have other, it's not that you have other interests. It's just that there's more to you than just being a trombone player. It's very interesting to me. And I think, I mean, if you want to sort of expand upon if you've ever had any issues with trying to separate yourself or if it's sort of just been an outgrowth of what you described from your childhood where you just had so many experiences. Uh, I, I'm kind of curious because I know a lot of people struggle with this identity of I do this one thing. And I'm kind of curious if you have words to, to speak to this kind of 
thing from how you have managed to separate that and just be willing to do all sorts of different stuff. I've got a plethora of experiences for that. <laughs> um, oh, jeez, so many. Um, I, I love the trombone. I love playing the trombone. The trombone is my, that's like my voice, my primary voice. But I did realize that, um, uh, like, for example, jazz. My favorite players, I love trombone players. Like, I love JJ. I love Slide. I love Curtis Fuller. I love Frank Roslino. I love Steve Touré. I love Wyclef, like Vincent Garner. Like, I love all these guys. I want to do everything that they can do. But I also really, really love trumpet players. <laughs> like, <laughs> almost, almost more um, to the point where, like, I, I really, I, I can identify, like, with Cliff, Clifford Brown. Like, I feel like, uh, some of his stuff like really, really touched me. Uh, same with Miles. Uh, same with Kenny Dorham. Um, and the list goes on. Chet Baker, uh, obviously Winton, uh, who's mm-hmm. definitely one of my first major influences. Um, and so I think like looking at um, looking at that and just kind of looking like, okay, I play trombone, but I want to kind of go into these other things. I want to learn this other stuff kind of started to get me to divert my attention to sax players. And it was like, oh man, Dexter Gordon, I, if I could just get a bit of that, you know, uh, you know, then pianist Bill Evans uh, was one of my first favorite pianists. And so that's the musician side of me. Now on the flip side, when I came here and I started a uh, couple bands, one of the, one of the bands obviously was Q Sound. Another band was Basement Syndicate, which uh, I, I worked with for several years. And uh, I remember um, there's a huge singer-songwriter scene over here at the time, and there was like a lot of really, really amazing writers and, and musicians, just low-key. You know, it wasn't like they were flashing you to death. They were just playing. They were just singing the damn song. And they, you know, there's, there's a ton of talented people over here. So they were like delivering the song, great lyrics great melody and it was beautiful and i was like a couple times i sat in with them and i realized i was like this ain't like i'm playing but i'm not really in i'm not really contributing anything you know i and i'm doing all the stuff but Mm -hmm. it don't really it doesn't really make sense to the music it doesn't add anything and i feel out of place and so that started to open my mind to be like well how can i make a voice that fits into every situation because at the end of the day as we learn as we're growing up it's like i need to develop my voice like i need to be able to be true to who i am and so that opened my brain up to being like okay i'm gonna check out i'm gonna get heavy into like john mayer and like i'm gonna try to get heavier into like some alternative music and uh try to figure out like how i can expand my ear so that when I'm in situations, I can contribute something that's valuable. It may not be the same thing that someone else does, but it'll definitely be something that adds, you know. Um, and so that that was the beginning of that. And then like a couple of other humbling experiences, like um, one year basement was doing, a, we were doing, they, they, they had this huge uh, earthquake tsunami. Uh, I think it was in 2011. Uh, in, was it, it was uh, Indonesia? Indonesia, that's what it was. Yeah, big tsunami, uh, huge. Uh, and so they did a benefit concert 
And <laughs> the benefit was called like a thousand bands unite. And so we got the invite to co-play this festival, huge festival. And everything in Indonesia is huge, by the way. When it comes to like festivals, you know, you drive a jazz. There's so many people. <laughs> and so um, <laughs> we, we got to the festival and we're like, yeah, you know, this is great. You know, we're a four piece band. We're going to go and do our thing. And thousands and thousands and thousands of people here. We got on stage, man. And like we played the first note. And you see, you see, you see, like ten thousand people, right? Play the first note. All of them left. <laughs> <laughs> and so, what? We we didn't finish the we didn't even finish the first song. We we're like, oh man, this is bad. This is so bad. <laughs> I can't even imagine that. Oh my god. But, but you know, it the thing is, is like to be fair, it it was a rock festival. We were coming with like some, you know, jazz type Irish factor vibe. Uh, not quite Irish factor, obviously, because that's levels. Um, but like we were coming with a different vibe, and like it wasn't suited. It wasn't suitable to to the situation, and so they weren't feeling it, and they let us know. And those type of situations are like, oh, okay. So next time. We next, so there there is a there's a space where we have to occupy skill wise and musically to make sure that we cut through and and people can feel what we're doing. Maybe they don't like understand the flat nine and the thirteen and all that stuff. That's fine, but the 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 energy that we put into the music it has to be right. And so that kind of opened my mind too to being like okay it's not just about jazz and it's not just about classical. It's not about any of that. It's about music, just playing good music and playing from the, the chess and just putting it there. And that's, that's it pretty much. All right. So this, what you just said here, I think is super, super I'd like to stick on it for a second. Cause one reaction you could have had is all these 10,000 people are wrong. They don't like appreciate <laughs> you know, what we're doing, you know, like they're not educated or whatever, right? Like, I think we hear this sometimes when we don't have full audiences, you know, in my world uh, here in Alabama, like sometimes we can view it as like, they don't know, mm. right? They're not educated in classical music. And so the problem is not us. The problem is the state of music education or the problem is, is they like country music here in Alabama <laughs> and we're not doing that kind of thing. And I, what you, what you touched on, and I'd, I'd, I'd love your, your, your thoughts. What you touched on, saying that it's not about whether it's classical music, it's not about whether it's jazz. It's about sort of playing great music and connecting. I think sometimes as musicians, we can get so wrapped up in our own thing that we forget that there's an audience who is listening to it, and like in some sense, their vote matters too. And I'm just kind of curious what you, what you would, because your experience would say, like I think it would be easy for classical musicians to be like, they're all wrong. They don't know. They're like that's the problem. But you were saying they let it, they let you know, and you adjusted kind of what you were thinking. At least it made some impression on you about how you might adjust what you're doing. And I'm curious, like, if for you to expand upon that a little bit in light of that framework. No doubt, man. That's that that is like, uh, you know, it, it's the same like person to person. Like if you let's say you're in a relationship with someone, and your first idea when things go bad is to be like, man, you know, this person, like this person, this person. But truthfully, like the only thing that you can really change is yourself. Um, 
and and whether like you want to be in that situation or not ultimately like that's up to you but uh the only thing you can actually change is yourself and so the same thing i feel like is is with music like cuz people of course we 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 educate people you know uh, as artists our job is to to do that and to show people how we can depict life through sounds and stuff like that and i think that that's super important as well um but on the flip side i also feel like um it it is important to know what's going on like for example right now you know we're in a huge trap situation with music i personally don't really identify with that all the time like i like some tracks uh some stuff but uh in general like it's not the some it's not the music that i'm going to listen to to soothe my soul but i respect that there's a huge demographic of people that like it for whatever reasons and that's another topic all all by itself uh you know when you talk about like why people are listening to the same thing um but separating from that because i can't control that i can control what i give to people um if i have to throw something in like if i'm doing a show and i know that like this audience is going to be a certain type of demographic maybe i'll throw something in there that they might like like a cover song or like like for example we did i have this one my big band um where we would do a cover of this song by this this cat named Amine called Caroline and every time we do that song you know people would get hyped and so yeah. like when you when you're on stage and you feel that feeling um whether it's an original song or whether it's a cover whatever it doesn't matter like when you feel that feeling of people really uh connecting with you then it's a feeling that you want to kind of have more and more so whether whether you want to like uh go and like and I've done this before too where I was I was when I first moved here I was writing and like writing all these extensive head songs and you know 10 minute songs and 20 charts on stage and uh <laughs> I have one song called Asa la Victoria Siempre which is about the Mexican Revolution and uh you know showing from the beginning to the the thing uh and i thought like man this is this is some, some you know this is some stuff and mm-hmm. you know we play it and people would be like all right you know that's cool <laughs> and, <laughs> and i mean that's that's fine too like i'm i'm good with that i i wasn't it was very humbling but like uh i learned to be okay with that because i'm like okay this is a situation where i'm doing this to share something that's dear to me and also possibly educating as well On the flip side, I learned that if I want to maintain an audience or do something, then I'm probably going to have to do a little bit for them too. So sure. it, it, you you learn the trade-off and uh, I think that is important to respect the audience to some degree. Yeah, like you obviously can't completely let them determine because then you, there's just no part of you involved, right? You're just yeah. whatever. So there's the, I think that balance And again in in what I see in my you know little tiny circle of slice of the pie so to speak is just we we believe what we do we believe the music that we play it's stood the test of time like people should care about it because it exists not necessarily uh because of any other value other than this is a great masterwork Beethoven 5 like you should care about this kind of you know what I mean and and I think it could use some creativity 
and whether or not we're actually changing what we program or just the way that we present it, the way that we connect, just this idea that the whole experience from start to finish mm -hmm. is part of the audience's experience, you know, like what they're doing in the, in the, in the lobby, what they do after the show in between intermission. I think all that stuff can matter. And I don't always, I'm not trying to pretend I have all the answers, you know, but I just think we can get really locked into, I want to do it the way I want to do it. And everybody should, everybody should appreciate me for it. Well, and I, yeah. Well, you know what? I mean, and that's not wrong. Like, I, I think that it's, it's super important to, to know thyself. So for me, like, cause I, bro, like, I love classical music. I, when we play, I'm, I'm, man, I wish everybody could hear Mahler 5. You know, I wish everybody could hear Rite of Spring, uh, and, and Prokofiev, all the Prokofiev symphonies and like, you know, and, and when that's, a, when there's a moment to do that, there is, but for me, and what I do as in my artistry, I know that that's that's not the flag that I carry, and I and, and I'm hopefully I'm not confusing when I say that. Like, like I'm I I want to share that, but I feel like my my uh, my message is slightly different. And so yeah. I it, I have to stay true to my message and do that. And I think that those who champion that music and really believe that they have to do that because that's what if they don't do it, then no one does it. And I the same you. thing if I don't do this, then no one's going to do it. So we all we all need each other. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, uh, you've spoken about we haven't really touched on it yet. Just spoken about moving to Malaysia, and I mean. It's not, it's not like a hop and a skip. You know what I mean? That was like one of the longest experiences of my entire life. I watched all the Harry Potter movies on the plane over there. You know, like that's how much time you have on that plane ride. You're about as far away as you can get. And I was just visiting, right? I just went over there for a week, came back. It's like it didn't happen. But to be that far away from everything that I would have ever have known uh, is is a very uh, got to be a huge just culture shock, you know, of like, I'm no longer around anything that I understand or know. So I'm kind of curious if you want to tell us a story about how, what the audition was like, kind of where you were when you did that, what the move was like, kind of just take us with you about that, those early parts about being in Malaysia and kind of just, I mean, I'm just curious what that was like. Oh man, I've had so many, uh, <laughs> it's been very humbling man like uh even from the point of like living in a muslim country and there was a period where i would tell my parents like i live in a muslim country they'd be like oh be careful you know like because back at that time uh what was it 2008 so there was still like this slight stigma because of 2000 or the 9 11 mm -hmm. stuff you know and like you know, for better or for worse, like that was a conversation and I had to tell them, I was like, no, it's, it's totally cool. It's, it's actually, uh, it's made me a better Christian in a lot of ways because I get to see people, you know, like right now it's the fasting month. So you see people, you know, fasting every day. And I look at that and I'm like, wow, you know, uh, not getting into the whole political thing about religion and that's another conversation, but sure, sure, the sure. fact that people are doing it, you know, and that most people's intentions are genuine. I'm like, okay, 
what am I doing for my faith? But anyway, going back to your, sure, your no, question. It makes a, lot of, <clears throat> makes a lot of sense, actually. I appreciate you saying that because sometimes we can get simple, just what we're talking about. Getting lo- I'm also a Christian, too. So I mm-hmm. think about these types of things. You see how people act out their faith. Yeah. And then, like you're saying, we look at it's. I I I just like that perspective. I'm sorry to interrupt, no, but no. that perspective. You're just so willing to look inward towards like it's not everybody else is doing it right or wrong. You're just seeing what's this experience like and what is it you know what is that teaching me? Uh, I think that's a really healthy perspective. And like what you're talking about, it almost for me too, almost always leads to being humbled, which is like not an, doesn't always feel great to be there, but I always appreciate any experience that brings me there. Oh yeah, because man, the worst the worst feeling for me is is not being aware of my own nonsense and just doing it, <laughs> doing it with, with with no mind, just like doing it. I mean, of course, like when you don't know, you don't know. But like as we get older, we're like, man, I I I don't want to constantly be doing stuff that's just wasting my life or my energy or my spirit. Like I want to constantly be, you know improving as a person and definitely thank music for that because music has been a huge uh uh tool in teaching me that skill or that understanding that um but you asked me about like how how i got to malaysia uh so uh because we can talk about that too (laughs) that other stuff (laughs) um so i was i was you know really in a comfortable spot in new york more or less i mean i had a couple bands i was working with uh I had a really fun gig I did every Friday night in the in this place called the Village Underground with this cool band called the Union and we played and that was the first time I I played like horn parts like we do earth wind and fire stuff and I have a little time to solo and see people dancing and like having a great time it was a great stage it was Friday there was a lot of girls and like stuff you know so perfect thing to have in college and uh so it was like really cool, and um, but I I wasn't making a ton of money, and so when I was uh, uh, my last I was in my master's I did I did a bachelor's and a master's at Juilliard, and uh, the bachelor's I did with uh, in the classical division. So the master's I I auditioned and got into the jazz program, and so I was doing that and studying with uh, Wyclef and Steve Turay at the time, and uh, Joe uh, called me. And was like, uh, hey, uh, you want to? What do you think about taking an audition or playing in Malaysia? Uh, and I'm like, where's Malaysia? I don't know what, Mal- what is Malaysia. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, he's like, hey, it's a really great situation. Um, the orchestra is funded by oil company, and so uh, the NPO started in 1998, I believe. And so this was 2008 when I got the call. Um, so from that, from 98 to 2008, they were doing a lot of big stuff. Like they had, uh, huge orchestras, orchestras coming through to play. Like they had Philadelphia orchestra, they had New York Phil, they had, uh, London symphony, they had the Berlin, they had, uh, the Lincoln center jazz come, um, huge artists coming through. Brantford came, went and came like it was, they were trying to make this place like a, a spot and they had tons of funding. And so. They were doing everything they could to get people in and out of here. Um, so Joe was telling me, like, this is a, a legit thing. And I talked to a couple players who were who were already playing here, and they were saying, like, yeah, um, it's really great. Uh, the salaries are really great, especially versus the cost of living. 
It's the tropics. It's a really fun place. Come through. And so I, I did a two-week stint here. And I was like, okay, this is cool. And then they offered me a one-year uh, position for a co-principal. So that's when I had to make a decision whether I was going to uh, continue my last year of my master's or come here. And it was a really tough decision because, I, like I said, I loved – at that particular point, I felt like if I had stuck it out, I could have probably made something special for myself in New York. Uh, and it's, it's such a – it's a tough scene. It's, it's super dense. There's so many talented players. And I finally felt like I found, like, a spot for myself. Um, but I decided to go ahead and give this a shot. Um, and during my one-year uh, contract, they asked me to audition. So I auditioned for co-principal. I won the job. And uh, I've been here ever since. Yeah, wow. Well, I mean, when I was there... <laughs> I don't remember her name. She plays Piccolo in Malaysia. Sonia. Um, yeah. Sonia Croucher. That's right. That's yeah. right. She's asking me if I knew any flute players who were interested because the, I think the principal flute position was open. Mm. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, so I, I, my, my roommate was the second, at the time was the second flute player in the orchestra. So I was like, does that interest you? And she's like, yeah, that sounds awesome. And then I think she, looked <laughs> at Malaysia she was like oh my gosh like not only is it all across the world but anytime you would want to audition for a different opportunity in the United States it's a huge thing to be able to get back over here you know and uh it's just such a a difference so you're basically making this decision that like I'm I'm committed you know I'm, yeah. I'm committed if I'm going to move to Malaysia and so when you first moved I imagine you probably didn't know very many people. So hopefully like people in the orchestra were cool, but how long did it take you to feel like you were sort of like settled? Like this was home for you. It took a while. It took a while. Cause like, uh, like you said, I didn't know anybody over here. Um, but I, I, after I came few more people that I knew came. So, uh, I was here for like maybe one year, and then another trumpet player who studied at Juilliard, who you might know his name is Liam Day. Uh, mm -hmm. He came and auditioned for second trumpet, so then he was here. And then another buddy of mine who I played in the brass quintet with, and I knew because he went to Curtis, named Zach Bond, a uh, really, really amazing bass trombonist, he came here. And then his friend, Tony Wise, who was another great trombone player, came here. And there's a couple other people that came. Uh, so then we started to have like a little bit of a, of a, of a brass section, like a serious brass section. We had a really great horn player um, from Australia uh, who could play really well. Uh, plus we had a great tubist and uh, Brett Stemple who studied with uh, uh, Tony, And uh, we had, we had a lot of great players. And so, then it be, then we start to all kind of get this understanding like wow we could actually do something really special here and uh, also the uh, trumpet player principal trumpet player at the time John Dante uh, mm -hmm. who plays uh, principal in Singapore um, so like at that time we started to see like oh man we could really do something special here and so that became a reason to kind of like want to stay and also. And every everyone, you know, you, you if you talk to more musicians from the orchestra, you probably get the same sense sentiment that like there's this feeling of 
like when I said blank canvas concept, uh, there's this feeling of that orchestra where it's like you feel like there's this want to do great things uh, mm-hmm. and that there is opportunities, you know, because we are essentially the, we are the New York Philharmonic over here. We are the London Symphony. We, we, we have such a huge uh, position in the country as far as what we can offer. So being able to be a part of that uh, and, you know, contribute to the country artistically in that way is, is a very special position. Yeah, I mean, the recordings you hear, the group sounds amazing, you know? And I remember, I mean, I, I think I started, came across a YouTube recording maybe of something like pictures, you know, 10 oh. years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, it's the same deal when you're, maybe even more than 10 years ago, when you're an age where you think you've got it all figured out, <laughs> you you check out this recording of Malaysian Philharmonic, you're like, oh, this this can't be good. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, you get this idea. <laughs> and then you listen to it and you're like, oh, oh my gosh, this sounds like ridiculously good, you know? So I, I think that, that's such a cool, I don't want to say trade-off, but that's such a cool trade-off that, you, that you're able to say, well, this may be a completely different experience, but I am living that element of uh, whatever dream it may be for you. You know, for here, it's like there are many orchestras that sound like that, but to, it's, to be a part of one is still difficult. You know, it's not a guarantee that you're going to work your way into a group that sounds that good. So mm-hmm. I, I think it's cool that you could kind of, in your mind, make that distinction. Like there's some stuff over here that's like, whoa, I don't know anybody, but over here, you know, take the bad with the good, so to speak. Um, okay, so then you're with Malaysia doing the principal trombone thing. Uh, how... Is Q sound something you started, or is it something that uh, like a group of you decided to do? How did this How did this thing come about, and what has it been like for you to dive in and invest in this just completely different musical venture? Uh, yeah, Q sound is something that I started, um, and basically, uh, uh, so when I first came, I was co principal, and the section principal was Kevin Thompson. Shout out to Kevin Thompson, who really helped me out a lot. Him, uh, the original section that was here when I first got here. Uh, him, uh, Johan, uh, who plays a uh, really great bass trombone. Um, so uh, I used to ask Kevin if I could, you know, sub out for some concerts. And Kevin would be like, okay, it's cool. And that's when I started doing my first Q Sound shows. And I remember when I uh, when I was talking to one of the clubs, and I was like, um, "I got a band. What's the name of the band?" I'm like, "I don't know." <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to say Marcus Young Quintet because like um, it's kind of a tricky, touchy subject. But at the time, like you, 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 you we. I wasn't supposed to be doing that gig. <laughs> you know what I mean? I see. Yeah. 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 So I, I was like, okay. Um, so Q is a nickname that some of my close friends call me because my name has a Q in it. And then sound was uh, something that a couple guys at Juilliard, I got from them. Cause like, I remember practicing one of the studios and someone was like, sound, sound, or something like that. And I just always remember that. And I was like, I don't know what the hell they're talking about, but, um, so I was like, uh, Q sound. And uh, then I did the gig, and at the time, it was like a heavy jazz uh, project, you know, where we were doing like a lot of through-composed music. 
And slowly it evolved into an R&B project because I had this <laughs> revelation one year um, right before I started. Right, I think it was right in the middle when I was working on uh, my my first album, Dual Citizenship, and I was uh, I was thinking about like, okay, I I want to figure out how to incorporate more of my my influences from when I was younger into my music because I've been pushing and pushing like this stuff that I've learned um, that I love, but it's not my first voice. I can't sit here and tell you that I love jazz. I love jazz. Like, I listen to jazz a lot, but is that my first voice? No, it's gospel music. It's R&B music. Mm. Um, and so when I, when I realized that like, I can, love, I can love this stuff, but I need to make sure that what's coming out for me is me. Uh, that's when the music started to evolve and have more elements. It became like a lot of different elements fused together rather than pushing one agenda. Um, and eventually, uh, it became what it is now, which is uh, I'm working on a new album, and it's uh, stuff that I'm producing. I, I've started producing music uh, for myself and other artists about three, four years ago. Uh, I was really crappy at it. <laughs> and I, I've, been, <laughs> I've been working on it. I'm still working on it. Um, so hopefully people like what I've produced. But... Um, it's been a journey to try to figure out how to make this sound. And there's not a lot of trombone in the album. Like people listen to it that I've I've played tracks for and they're like, Yeah, but are you gonna put any horns in the album? I'm like, I yes, I will, but it hasn't really seemed like something that has it's not like the sound is called for yet. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Like it's like the song doesn't need it, so why would I put it in there? You know, even though I love trombone, but that's not trombone is like a a tool for me. It's not really my identity. Yeah, no, that's kind of what we were touching on earlier. What that I th I find just so uh, inspiring and encouraging for where I am in my life right now is, I mean, something as simple as uh, this is something I heard Jeremy Wilson say. If you know Jeremy, um, mm, he he was saying too, like this idea that when I'm posting on Instagram or something like that, if I post a, a, a something that doesn't have to do with the trumpet, like I have to do some mental gymnastics to convince myself why I should post that, you know? Like, instead of it just being like, ah, this is like my cat, whatever, you know? I'm like, well, are people going to care about like my cat instead of the like. That's sort of an example of what, I, what I'm sort of talking about. And for you to be able to just say, well, the trombone doesn't belong there. Like you've just developed... And again, we've we've already touched on it, so we don't have to dig in. But I just have so much respect, and like I said, it's very encouraging for me to see that like it, you can get to this space where you're just you, and all these different facets of you are. It just will be what it is when it needs to be that. You don't have to work in this thing that everybody knows you as one way. I'm pretty new into these. You know, I'm like becoming like a practice coach. I'm trying to help people learn how to practice. And we don't, I don't bring the trumpet out hardly at all when I talk to people about these kinds of things and mm. other aspects. I'm getting into like trying to uh, get into like videography and photography mm. and, st and shooting headshots and all that kind of stuff or portraits. And it has nothing to do with the trumpet. Mm. And I really enjoy doing it. But to be able to say this is something I do is, is, Ultimately, I think you just make that leap, right? You just say, this is something I do, and you start doing it. But I think you, I think you can understand how that can be a, 
a bit of a leap for for someone who's done this one thing and decided that this is the thing I'm going to do. Oh, totally, man. It's like I said, I had many a humbling experience to <laughs> to get to this point. It wasn't it wasn't pretty, but uh, like I said, I, I just feel like at the end of the day, you know, especially the Instagram thing, which we can get into. Um, I've gone through many waves of that, but at the end of the day, man, the best I can be is myself. I, I can't really, mm. like I said, I love JJ. I love all these guys, man. And I wish I could do that. But like, as much as I shared that stuff, it's just not in me to make that sound. But what is in me to make a sound is, is Q sound Marcus. That's my sound. And, and I've had to be okay with the fact that like, it might not be like a top 40 song. It might not, be everybody's cup of tea, but it's mine. It's my voice, and I'm gonna be. I'm gonna keep it 100% real. Yeah, I can die with that. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. I, I was speaking with a friend. They were talking about you know you, you just do like the best you can do, and the beautiful part about that is when you get to the end, you can look back and say I did the best that I could. You know, like the best I could to be me. Like there's fewer regrets in that kind of idea and i i think it's you know you're taking it to the next step of just being true to yourself uh in in that too and uh i'm curious man you've talked about how malaysia and just that area of the world i would imagine is a bit of a blank slate as compared to a place like new york or places that have more history behind it i'm kind of curious how you've seen it grow in your time there if it has grown and what opportunities you think are um are are possible i guess or what opportunities exist there that don't exist in new york or just kind of like reflecting upon mm. what like what you, what advantages you might have being in a place like um malaysia and that part of the world where there's not as like you said it's more of a blank slate uh well before we jump to that i just i do want to say that it isn't um, I think I, when I said that, I don't, I don't think I could be JJ. I didn't mean that I, I won't study JJ. I yeah, think yeah. that it's super important. And I, I just make this important, this clear that like, we all have to study, you know, music and the history and stuff. And so when you ask me like, uh, what's, what's different about Malaysia versus New York city opportunity wise, um, this is another thing that I've had to be humbled because like when I, when I first come, when I first came to Malaysia and this happens with a lot of expatriates, uh, you come here, this new country and you think like, well, why isn't it like the States? You know, like why, man, these cats sound sad. Like they ain't doing this. They ain't doing that. And like, you know, and that's, that's an, I, that's a, an idea to come with, but eventually like you kind of feel the pushback. Um, I know I had that in the beginning. I came you know, guns are blazing and I've seen other people come the same way. And when you talk to the, <laughs> the people on the other side of that and they're like, yo man, like, I mean, I hear what you're saying, but it ain't cool. <laughs> you know? And like, <laughs> and, and Hey, both sides are right. Like, cause at the end of the day, like, you know, your truth is your truth. And my truth is my truth. Who am I to tell you, you know, cause Malaysia, by by right has its own musical history they have got a great they've got a really deep musical history of their own stuff that i don't i'm completely ignorant to mm -hmm. so i'm coming to malaysia trying to push uh music that is 
people have people do it because they've obviously been exposed to recordings and internet and people and great players have come here but is it their first music no not the way it, not the way jazz is america's first music so i i don't know for me i just thought like okay jazz can be my thing r&b all this stuff can totally be my thing but at the same time i want to see what's their thing you know cuz i feel like between the two there's some middle ground that uh is is going to meet the situation that I'm in right now. And so uh the humbling experience was going through that and realizing that like the same opportunities that I had in New York were not going to be here or they're not they're not going to look like they did in New York. Um uh, and I made my peace with that because for a long time I was like, man, I just maybe I shouldn't have left, maybe I shouldn't have did this, I shouldn't have did that. But then I realized, yo, I'm here. I'm I'm I have the the blank canvas. Let's paint something. And then stuff started to happen and you know, I had some cool opportunities where I got to you know, for I I uh opened for uh no, I opened for some really great artists. Uh Hiatus Coyote before they became really famous. Uh my band opened for them, uh which was like a chance thing. That was like 5 years ago. Um, I did music for one of the big, the biggest events in the country, F1, you know, where they, I got hired to run the musical programming for a sector of that, that event, you know, that was, that was a pretty big thing. And I was like, just here for like three, four years. Mm-hmm. Um, some, some things like that, like, I feel like if I was in the States, there's just so many people above me that would have gotten those slots and rightfully so. But here I get the opportunity to, to uh, do certain things like that. Also, I just started working with this really amazing rapper named Joe Flizzo, who I'm, you know, kind of like MDing for him. Uh, and I'm a tremolo player, you know, but I'm sitting on the keys, you know, doing my thing. You know, we just do these big, you know, recordings and whatever. And, you know, it's fun. It's like, cool, you know. And I, I, I think like uh, certain certain things I miss out on, but on the flip side, I get exposed to so many other cool things that it just balances off. Yeah, I, I one of the things I enjoy about kind of doing my own thing as well is the feeling that I don't have to wait for somebody to tell me that this opportunity exists, if that makes sense. Like in an orchestra, you have to sort of wait until somebody programs Mahler 5 or somebody asks you to go talk to donors or somebody says, oh, we could do this solo or this recital. Doing my own thing, it's a, it's so much more open. There's so much less security in doing your own thing. But at the same time, I, you sort of feel like master of your own fate, so to speak, that kind of idea that you can... Say I'm going to work hard. I'm going to create something, and I'm going to put it out there. And uh, I, I wonder because you're in both things, you know, you're in an orchestra where they program, and you're sort of just either on a baroque week where you're you're not even there, or you're playing something like Mahler two, versus being able to sort of play in your own projects, write your own music, program, sorry, produce or you know record all that stuff on your own time. And I'm just kind of curious. If you have any thoughts about the value and benefit of one versus the other, if that makes sense, kind of what I'm asking, like, just curious if you can expand upon some of those thoughts. Yeah. Um, 
Well, the pandemic has made me realize that I need both, like, because I had a year of doing my own thing and it's definitely fun, but I miss playing in the orchestra. Um, cause there's so many great musical moments that you can draw influence from. Mm. Uh, so I, 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 they, they, for me, they, they work hand in hand. Uh, and it's, it's kind of been a truth that I've learned to appreciate over, over time. Uh, cause it's, it's just, I, I, but the cool thing is like, uh, like you said, when you, when you have the freedom to make decisions and choose the steps you take, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, risk in that, you know, like I definitely feel like, okay, I probably could have done this better. I could have taken this step or whichever, but on the flip side, it's like, I'm constantly learning, throwing myself in the fire. Uh, and just swim. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you know, with an orchestra too, like yeah. somebody's taking that risk. It's just not you. You know, I mean, somebody's mm. in the front office trying to figure out how to get people to come to your concerts and 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 market you and figure out how to do all that. Right. It's just not us. And yeah, so I've, it can. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Go. Sorry. I was just gonna say it can it can for when you're in an orchestra, it can become easy to perceive that. Like, it just can be easy to be disassociated from that reality that, like, somebody's doing that work, whether it's you or it's not you. And when you're doing it all on your own, I feel like I have a greater appreciation for how hard it must be to do that kind of thing, you know, especially when you're not actually the one producing the content. Like, you are not the orchestra. You're not You're not speaking on behalf of yourself. You're trying to speak mm. on behalf of other people. I, I just think it's got to be difficult to do. I think I understand more what you meant in a, yeah, uh, definitely like doing the solo stuff makes you makes me appreciate uh, the orchestra planning and stuff. Also on the flip side, it makes me get, I get pissed off sometimes when we're working with uh, conductors and I like, they come into the rehearsal uh, with a chip on their shoulder. Like they, they know more music than, than me or, or anybody else. And at this point, like I, I don't really enjoy that you know, that condescending approach. Cause I'm, I'm think I'm looking at the conductor and I'm like, you don't know me. Uh, I mean, I respect you for what you, what you're bringing to the table. I just want you to respect me too, because there's stuff that I might be able to bring to this situation that might elevate your vision. And so it's really amazing when you work with conductors who can kind of feel that, that be in that same space with you. Cause then you can get some really spe special concerts. Versus a situation where the conductor's like, no, it's like this. And sometimes that's great too. Like it, the orchestra might need that, you know, but uh, in general for me personally, I'm never, uh, I, I, I do have a, a love hate relationship with that type of approach. And that's something that I've developed from sitting in my own projects and putting together my own projects. Cause I see like, okay, this is something that works when this is the program and we're working with this particular audience, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then I go to the orchestra and I see someone else do that, their version of that. And if I'm looking back, I'm like, I don't think that's a good idea, you know, or whatever, but that's, you know. Yeah. Well, and I think, I mean, we're, we're sort of taught, especially in the sort of orchestra and band tradition that our responsibility is just to do whatever the conductor says. You know what I mean? Mm. Like we rarely come at it from I have a musical vision and we're trying to add to that musical and especially playing at the level that you're playing at 
Malaysia, where you have a whole bunch of people who can bring something to it, the conversation is a little bit different. But I think, you know, for you being someone who realizes his musical vision all the time, you know, I feel like it can be, you have this other view of like what collaboration looks like. I think than a lot of people who are just like, I just want you to tell me what to do and I'll do it. And that's my job. My job is not to bring something. My job is to do whatever it is you want me to do. And I, so I think... Like for some people that sort of just do this. Oh, I, I mean, no one's going to dig the condescending vibe for sure. That no one's yeah. going to, no one's going to vibe that. But I think the idea that some come in and just say like, my responsibility is just to say how it is. Yeah, I'm with you though. I'm feeling that I have some ideas that you might appreciate and hopefully a conductor will see that. But it also comes from understanding that I have a level of confidence in what I am offering to begin with. Well, I mean, I mean, you know how it is. Like, we've played how many times we play Beethoven Five or Dvorak yeah. Nine. It's like there are certain pieces where it's like we we know the repertoire, and I do. I mean, of course, like you want to at baseline. Can I do what the conductor asked me to do? Okay, I need to be able to make sure I do that. Cut. But I also want to be able to, like, if we're playing, uh, what's a good example? Bruckner. Uh, Brooklyn Seven, something like that. And there's a chorale in the second movement. And it's soft trombone chorale. And just because like I I hear it in the moment, I want to make one of those notes a little bit longer. You know, just that day. You know, I want to do that because it makes sense in the moment. Mm-hmm. And and I don't I and and for me, like I, I don't like when situations happen. And the orchestra is doing one thing, and then the conductor's like, "Don't do that." And I'm like, "Yo, I mean, I don't want to do it, but it's it, the moment, <laughs> you know. Sure. Maybe I won't do it again, but the moment calls for me from from my whatever experience I have as a musician to do that, and I want to be free to do that, and and have like, okay, that's that's cool or what, whichever." You know that that's just that that dialogue and, and that freedom, and some conductors are really cool with that. Some some are, you know. So then it goes back to, can I do the the bass? I mean, thing? I think that's a very anti-classical music way to look at things in general, right? <laughs> I I feel like we want to get it so it's the same thing every single time. We know what to expect. We like the conductor to do exactly the same thing, exactly the same tempos, so we know what it is, so we can feel confident. But I imagine you coming from a background with a lot of improvisation. And being able to make these changes based on how you might feel something and have confidence in your ability, I mean, it's it's very different from, I think, how most classical musicians view what they would want for their own sort of security, maybe, or their own music making. Um, and I, I bet, yeah, a lot of your jazz influence has to do with that kind of um, feeling, I suppose. Well, yeah, I mean, definitely. And don't get me wrong, like, I think that if you're playing certain repertoire, like, you have to have a bass position. You can't just, like, oh, freestyle everything. <laughs> yeah. But but there are moments, man, like, and, and for me, that's the magic. Like, that's the, that's when, when, when it really, that's when it's something, you know? And luckily, like, uh, I feel very blessed because MPO has a lot of musicians who do do that. And we do get a lot of moments uh, where we can do that. Not all the time, but uh, you know we've we've had you know moments where we can do that, and it's been really cool to be able to be a part of that. Yeah. Uh, 
I, w- I kind of want to make a little bit of a shift here, if you're okay with that. Um, yeah, sure. This is the other, the other part I emailed you about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things that I've been learning a lot about, and this sort of started um, uh, last year um, with the death of George Floyd. I feel like for the first time, it's not that I became aware of the problems that we have in our country, but I feel like it affected me in a different way, you know? Mm-hmm. And I feel like part of it is because... I was actually, I mean, I don't have that many, um, basically, I don't have that much like diversity in my friend groups of where I live and who I interact with in the orchestra and stuff like that. And so I think I had made some friends that were for black. And so all of a sudden, I'm feeling more of how something like that would affect people. Mm. And so I've tried to be intentional with my podcast of trying to hear experiences and stories from people who might... Um, not might, but just have experienced racism and discrimination, just trying to be open. Because, you know, like I think the conversation often skews in one way or the other. It's just like everything is completely horrible or like this problem doesn't exist and it only exists because we acknowledge it. You know what I mean? And I feel like the middle ground of like listening to people and just hearing their life experiences. So not not only can we become aware, but we can just also connect as people. Mm-hmm. It's something I care very deeply about. And so um, I, I would be interested in your perspective, having lived in America and having lived in Malaysia. And is it is it different? Because when I went to Malaysia for the first time in my life, I was not the majority <laughs> race. No. And I was, I mean... I was with them, you know, MPO and John Bork most of the time. So I was still around, you know, people that looked like me, but it was just, a, I, I mean, I never, I had never felt that before. You know what I mean? Mm. And it was definitely eye opening. And as we've talked about, humbling to be like, oh, that's what it's like, you know, like that's mm. what it's like to not necessarily just to have a lot of people that don't look like you surrounding you all the time. So, uh, I just kind of want to open it up. You can say as much or as little as you want, but I kind of want to give you the space so I can learn from you. I can hear your story. I can connect with you in, in this way as well. And just and like I said, if you have reflections on how it's different in the two different cultures you lived in, I'd be interested in that as well. This one is a tricky one for me um, because I, I've, I mean, of course, I've I've experienced racism. I mean. <laughs> being most situations I'm the only you know African American you know even now I'm, I'm the only one in the orchestra or you know uh, in orchestral settings uh, and but I've also been very fortunate because um, I, I, I give this to my mom I mean we I mean the South has its you know it has its issues uh, but I never really, she shielded me from it pretty well. Mm. Um, and it didn't really, once I fell in love with music, I just kind of did that. And so I didn't really, I mean, of course stuff would happen, uh, but I was just kind of like, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this music. Sure. And that's kind of how I, I went about it. Uh, but seeing things like the the shootings and stuff, definitely invokes a lot of a lot of feelings for me like when i saw the george floyd thing it was very painful uh to see uh this happen first off to a human being yeah right uh, but then to you know someone of color like myself and knowing the the struggles um uh, that we've had to deal with um for for very many years 
I was definitely very, um, uh, I, I was upset. I had a, you know, a moment, you know, but then I, for me, and it's a bit different because I, I've lived abroad and I've experienced racism here too which kind of pisses me off. So I'm like, why are you being racist to me? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But at this point, man, I'm just like, humans are, we, we need to, we need to just like, just stop. (laughs) Like the, and, and I know that like uh, the biggest thing for me is when I, as I live my life, I want to live my life through, through love. And I want my message to be one of love. Like one of my favorite we didn't talk about this. One of my all-time favorite artists, Stevie Wonder. And like one of the things I love about Stevie Wonder is all his songs, most of them, they have a really, really, you know, cosmic, powerful message about them. And I told you, like, that's my spiritual connection with music. And I just feel like my thing is love. And first it starts with love of self and not in a uh not in a in a in a egotistical way but like truly to 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 take care of one's you know temple and your soul and your spirit and make sure that that are you living the life that you should be to inspire others to be the best that you can be um et cetera, et cetera. um so that's where it starts with me so my whole fight with racism is kind of like um as much as I want to change what people think, and I would love to be able to do that and argue you down and tell you facts upon facts upon facts, I just feel like there is an education to some to some degree, but then like at the same time, it's going to be up to you, you know, to like take the information and receive the information. And luckily, with all the informations out, like people are getting more information. Um, but is their heart always open to receive the information? Yeah. And I, and I, I've had conversations. I remember having a conversation with this guy who was, a uh, he supported, uh, uh, who was he? He, he had a very controversial stance. Uh, this is right when Trump got elected and, uh, he had a controversial stance to mine, different to mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we sat there and we talked in this bar for about three hours Never had an argument, but we just had conversations about like how where each other stands. And for me, that was the best thing ever because it was like I was able to have a conversation with someone who didn't see things the way I see saw things, but they were also able to articulate their point in a way that it didn't just go straight to like this emotional, you know, just unprogressive conversation where it's like, well, because it's like that. Just like it, it was never like that. I mean. I, I still didn't agree with him. I don't. But the fact that he had his points and they were they were understandable. Sure. I was like, okay, I can I can see that. We can agree to disagree. And we get along. We're fine. And that's cool. And I kind of feel like, um, I mean, I'm not really talking about racism, but more just like conflict between people. Um, I feel like when we when we can find a space where we can accept that there's beauty in being different and there's beauty in the fact that like we're not completely the same even though we are i think that's a powerful space 
because now we take down the we take out all of the rhetoric and all of the the stuff and we just see people and we see like okay is this what Dr. Martin Luther King meant like being able to live together in a space where we can talk with each other without hurting each other and without like being violent with each other and and have disagreements but still be able to look each other in the eye and be like you know man to man I respect you I don't agree with you but we can we can live you know together and be fine yeah i love that perspective man sorry to uh, i would liken it to something like my relationship with my wife you know like there are times where we may not agree upon something and i mean one reaction for me could just to be to get angry you know and just mm. try to try to be like no it's going to be my way but i love her and i see her as someone that i care about and so my desire is to understand her and so I can see, like you said, all right, you make some good points. Maybe I, maybe I was kind of an ass. Okay. All right. I'm feeling, you know what I'm saying? And, and that's like in many ways what I'm trying to do um, with anyone I can talk to is just to be like, I just want to know, I just want to understand you. I want to understand. And that's what one of my favorite things about this podcast in general is like you're talking about, you start to see like how many of us, again, if we're stepping right outside of the race conversation again, back into the music conversation, just like you and I have had many similar life experiences in terms of like how we progressed and then what we cared about and, you know, like becoming professionals. And there's, it's just amazing to talk to you and see how much connects us, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I think it's a beautiful thing to be able to start, you know, to be able to have, like you say, conversations about, and this isn't the space, I'm not going to create like an argument. We're going to disagree about anything, right? Because that's not the point of this. But the idea that I feel like I know you to a some degree where we could have a conversation about whatever, you know? And like, I, I totally agree. Getting to a place where people are like, we may not agree on stuff, but like I have a desire to to get, be messy, to meet and understand people. So it's harder. You know, I think it's easier to hate a faceless person that you don't know than it is to hate your friend mm. or to hate somebody that you, you know, you care very deeply about that you may disagree with. Man, and you know, I sell that because... I have had conversations with, you know, people who are racist, you know, not the quoted, but like, you know, and of course it's frustrating because like they, you know, from their perspective, they see things a certain way. And of course I don't agree with it. Uh, and I think, da, da, da. but what can I do to change their perspective? Like, am I going to shame them? Am I going to, you know, beat them over the head with history and facts and all this stuff? I mean, you can, but like at the end of the day, they'll just be like, okay, I'm going to put on a face and pretend like I'm not, but this is actually how I feel. And that's what I mean by like, my whole thing is like, you can't change a person. Like the only person that you can change or do anything to is yourself. That's it. And the the best thing you can try to you can try and like speak resonant messages to people and hopefully they hear it, but it's up to them whether they want to hear that or not. And what I find with the people who think like that is, a lot of times they don't want to hear that, you know. And so, then what do we have? How are we gonna how are we gonna continue to talk about this? Um, and for me, that just means like okay, at the end of the day. 
I have my life. I need to live my life a certain way so that no matter what, whatever I'm doing, people, going back to race now, people see a black person, African-American person of color that represents these qualities. Hopefully, I, I, show, I show that to people. And maybe I can't convince everybody. But the people who know me, the people who engage with me and they see me, they'll be like, oh, you know what? If, if they did have that thought of like, oh, they're all like this, they might. I'll, I've had this happen where people be like, you know what? Why you, why you talk like that? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you know you, this is a great one. They'd be, they'd be like, you talk like, you talk, talk kind of white. And I'd be like, <laughs> I'm like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> like, what yeah. you think? You don't you think? I, I grew up in the South. You think white people don't talk like like they ain't got no sense too? Yeah. You think black people only <laughs> talk like they don't have sense? Like, what do you what do you mean by that comment? And then we have a conversation, and then it's an opportunity for me. You know, this has happened here, by the way. Um, it's an opportunity for me to educate them on the social programming and stereotyping that they've been indoctrinated with. And that, you know, you should see people for people and not for the color of their skin. Like, it doesn't, I mean, I know Chinese yeah. people who talk just as much nonsense as, you know, the other person, but are all Chinese people like that? No, of course not. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree with that perspective more. And I, I, I appreciate, um, I, I mean, I think there's a lot, like you're saying, there's just a lot of crazy people out there who, like, they, they don't want to hear whatever that somebody else's perspective. And I appreciate that in some de degree, we just have to let those people, I mean, like you said, you're not going to change anybody's mind. I guess that's the easiest way to say it, like you said. And the only thing I think can change people's mind is, as you described, treat like loving them, like treating them in a way that they possibly don't deserve. And then they're like, whoa, why is this happening? And I, I, feel, I mean, sometimes I feel like, man, like, this is probably not a very popular position on this subject, but I really feel like after having conversations with like people, you know, who just don't agree, they're like, I, you know, whatever. And it's like, at the end of the day, like, I can't, I can tell you so much history. I can tell you I deserve this. I can tell you I've done this. I can say, 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 but if they don't, and that's why there was another shoot. There was a, just a, a shooting like a couple of days ago. Yeah, it's not. It don't make it right. It's not right. The, the, the stuff has a stop, but is what's going to make it stop? Is it us complaining about it that's going to make it stop? Like I don't think anyone actually knows uh, what's going to actually make it stop. Uh, yeah. I, all I know is I have my life. I know other people who have their life, and we just. We try to do the best we can, try to have engaging conversation, engaging conversations, educate when we can. But are we going to be able to to stop certain types of behavior? This is a different thing, man, because you're talking about you're talking about the flesh, you know, and eventually it's going to go into like, OK, we're, we're <laughs> sorry, it's going to be like spiritual, but that's cool, um, man. It's gonna it's it's gonna basically go into like we're all born with the choice of doing doing right and wrong, you know, and what type of uh, capacity we have to make those choices is going to to influence that. So now it's like, well, okay, if you and I are you know young well, 
young, we'll say young adults. We're still young adults, right? That's fine, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if, we're, if we're young adults, right? And so we have children. How are we going to, this is the way that we can impact this thing. Uh, or if we teach, you know, what are we teaching? Uh, how are we rebuilding this society with our seeds? Um, because that's where changes can happen. Uh, moving forward, I feel. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I appreciate you being, I mean, for me, it's, I still haven't found a way that I feel comfortable broaching the subject, if that makes sense. So I just appreciate you being willing to go there with me and kind of just talk about it and, and let me listen and let me hear. And everybody who's listening right now on my podcast, I'm, I'm, I just appreciate you being willing to talk about it. Man, thanks for you know bringing it up. It's a it's a very tricky one, but I mean, it's the times that we're living in, and I, I do hope that like like I said, you know, between the two of us, we both want the right things, and we hope what we think we do, and we hope that we can make a positive influence on the situation, yeah. one way or the other. I totally agree. Um, I don't want to keep you any longer because I think it's like. What time is it? It's like two o'clock or something. <laughs> no, this <laughs> has been a very, very engaging conversation for me too. Yeah, man. man. It's, cool. I, and it's cool for me because, I mean, most of the people I interview, I, I have some level of, um, I, I know them, I guess. And so uh, to cold call you because everything about you just looks so interesting. You know what I mean? It's just like, <laughs> gosh, I gotta, I gotta talk to. I pre. It's it's been really cool to be able to connect with you and. Uh, you know, hopefully someday there's a, a chance to hang in person and, uh, yeah, and grab a drink yeah. or some coffee or something. I'd really enjoy that. Yeah, same here, man. Yeah. Um, all right. So to close this thing out, if if people are, uh, they enjoy what you're talking about, they want to check out Q Sound, all that kind of stuff, how can people find you? Well, you can find me on Instagram for sure. That's Q Sound Music, Q-S-O-U-N-D Music. Uh, I'm on YouTube too, Q Sound Music TV. Uh, Facebook, Q Sound. Uh, got an album I'm working on that's going to be uh, out fairly soon. A couple albums. So hopefully you you ride with me. You'll see this crazy journey I'm about to take on. Yeah, I'll link some of that stuff in the in the show notes so people can find it. If you need to get in touch with me, you can do that on uh, at that'snotspit.com and Facebook and Instagram at that'snotspit. If you enjoyed this episode, had any feelings at all, I'd appreciate it if you gave it a rating and a review on iTunes. And don't forget to share this on social media so other people can find it too. Uh, Marcus, I appreciate you giving me your time, man. It's a great conversation. Pleasure. It's all mine. Thank you for having uh, me. My pleasure, man. Uh, I want to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I'd like to thank you for listening. Stay strong. Be kind to yourself. Never stop growing. And we'll see you next time. Hello, hello, hello. That's not Spit fans, and welcome to the secret message of today's episode. Have you ever taken a trip? and got back and thought, man, am I tired. It's almost like you need a vacation from your vacation. I just took a trip and I am exhausted. Maybe it was the 12 hour drive, 
Maybe it was the nonstop action while I was away, but I forgot to take a day to myself afterwards, and I just kept right on going. So give yourself time to relax, give yourself time to recover, and remember, shh, don't tell Ryan.